0: This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education.
1: Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. I've really been looking forward to today's show. I'm excited to welcome some of my lawyer friends to the show today. I'm so happy to welcome Shakti Belway, who is an education consultant and former attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center's New Orleans office. Timothy Rivera is a staff attorney at Advocates for Justice and Education, Incorporated in Washington, D.C., and Stephen Chin is a civil rights attorney for the U.S. Department of Education Office, Office for Civil Rights in Denver, Colorado. Stephen is speaking today in his personal capacity and not on behalf of the Department of Education. Good morning to you all. Thank you so much for being on Know It All today. How are you? Good morning.
2: Oh, I'm well. Thank you. Good
0: morning. Thanks, Allison.
1: So, of course, the law and education have a long and storied history, if you will, with one another. Um, Charles Hamilton Houston and his legal team saw education as one piece of of the overall civil rights puzzle when they crafted the legal strategy that brought us Brown versus Board of Education. And we're here now almost sixty years after that and the law and education are still entwined in this very elaborate dance. Shakti, you've worked with nonprofit organizations that use the law to protect Student civil rights in school. Will you just tell us a little bit about the civil rights landscape in education today?
3: Absolutely. So there, you know, there's a lot of um, opportunity that remains within enforcement of the law in, in public education to protect the rights of students and parents. It is. It is uh, somewhat. It is somewhat disheartening uh, the, the extent to which the law doesn't necessarily have a way to address problems in schools, and particularly uh, problems that are that result in denying children educational opportunities. And I think that's something that um, you know we we collectively as, as Americans need to really think about what you know what mechanisms should be put in place to ensure that that students are able to. Access educational opportunity. It's in the best interest of this nation. However, uh, the work that the work that I'm doing, for instance, with the UCLA Civil Rights Project, involves um, uh, looking at looking at school districts where there are uh, high rates of suspension and expulsion and other forms of school discipline, and where students or certain students are being disproportionately impacted by a school's policies and practices. So for instance, sadly, one of the, one of the things that we see frequently is uh, school districts where African-American students are, are punished both more frequently and more harshly than, uh, their, than their white counterparts, and sometimes, you know, it's several times the rate of, of white students. The same is true for, often for Latino students. Uh, Native American students and other students of color, and so thankfully there is um, there is uh, the law around disparate impact and for entities that receive federal funding that um, such as school districts that we're able to um, use to advocate on behalf of those students. There are many other many other avenues that we pursue as well.
1: And Timothy, I know you and I have talked about the School to Prison Pipeline, which is something that funnels students, especially students of color, from school into the halls of juvenile detention facilities and, and adult prisons. Will you talk about what the pipeline is and what your work in the law has done to address
2: that? Sure. I, I want to thank you again, Allison, for having me. Um, the best That's way true. to start here would be to uh, to um, let folks know a little bit about my organization. Uh, our our name is Advocates for Justice in Education. We work in D.C., in Washington, D.C., and what we do, we're a nonprofit organization that uh, educates uh, parents in the D.C. community about laws governing public education, and especially uh, we focus on the laws affecting students with special needs. And through this, uh, we empower youth and families to be advocates for themselves within the educational system in order to pro- improve educational outcomes. Um, and when all this happens, also what happens is that uh, schools are more are held more accountable for their educational outcomes and how they're serving the community. Um, and, Allison, you mentioned that you know, there is an issue of uh, the school push-out or uh, the school-to-prison pipeline, which is the process of student, students moving from the classroom to prisons. And, of course, if you talk to anybody on the street, they're going to say, we want students to end up with good jobs. We want them to end up with, with degrees from, from, from higher edu- uh, institutions of higher education, college degrees. We want them to be able to be leaders in the community. What we don't want is for students to end up in federal prison. And what, what people looking at this issue have found is that uh, when students are put out of school, um, by suspension, by expulsion, by arrest in school, they are more and more likely. The more this happens to them, they're more likely to end up in the juvenile court, in the juvenile court system, and then we know that that often leads to the adult criminal justice system or adult incarceration. Um, and they are less likely um, to to achieve the outcomes we would like them to achieve, which are you know being able to be doctors, lawyers. And, uh, productive members of society. Um, so, what I, my practice is, and our, our law practice at AJE is, is to uh, represent those families um, and try to persuade the schools to keep the the students in school, and uh, as opposed to suspending or expelling them. And we do it through uh, through civil rights law, which is ensuring that these students are afforded a, a, what's called procedural due process before they're they're pushed out of school. Um, and we use that procedural due process, which is notice in the hearing, to advocate for uh, these students and, and hopefully um, keep them in school and uh, help them get the educations that they're entitled to while they're in school.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, um, you all know, I'm a former federal government attorney, having worked for the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division's Educational Opportunity Section for several years. and. Um, the government is very focused on the school-to-prison pipeline and protecting students who historically have been marginalized from educational opportunity. Stephen, will you talk about what you have seen the federal government do in education to protect the civil rights
2: of students?
0: Absolutely. Um, and, and I also wanted to to say again, thanks, Allison, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. It's um really flattering to be um, part of it. Um, Let me start by by also telling your listeners a little bit about uh, what our agency does. So as as Allison mentioned, I I work for the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. Um, We are in in many ways the counterpart to the agency that Allison used to work for, um, but on the education side of things as opposed to the Department of Justice side of things. Um, Our agency is Uh, comprised of about a dozen field offices across the country. Uh, We are about a staff of 600 nationwide. um, And uh, slightly unlike uh, Allison's uh, former office in the Department of Justice, we actually don't have a selective docket. So we accept and look at every single complaint that's filed with us uh, and, and in the last couple of years, our, our caseload has exploded. Um, I think because of the current administration's commitment to doing civil rights work, um, and especially in this area, the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, so, you know, what we get a lot of. Um, yeah, you know, I can't say we get a lot of in in the region that I'm currently in here in Denver, but um, certainly nationally. Um, We've had a lot more cases and a lot more compliance reviews, which are are cases that effectively our agency initiates um, investigating these issues of disparate treatment and discipline, Um, so looking at whether black and brown kids effectively are being disciplined at a higher rate, or being disciplined more severely or more harshly than their white counterparts, uh, and so you know I think our focus has been to try to to shut the pipeline down at the earliest possible stages, looking at referrals to discipline, looking at the kinds of guidance and instruction that teachers teacher aides, um, assistant principals, those who are sort of at the front line of administering the disciplinary codes within a school um, to to make sure that they're getting the right training, make sure that they're uh, thinking about the right things, making sure that they're not allowing their own personal biases to creep in um, as they're administering these disciplinary policies so that, you know, we ensure that everyone has a fairer opportunity, um, when it comes to dealing with these, um, school districts and, and, and their disciplinary codes.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add that, uh, to the, to the listeners that often I think when, when people think about a school discipline problem or a student who's being disciplined in school or, or even put pushed into the pipeline, uh, that they may think of a high school student who is perhaps 16 or 17 and, you know, just rebellious and doesn't want to follow the rules. However, what we found over and over and over again is that this, this type of harsh discipline and push out, this pushing at students out from school into the, the um, juvenile justice system, it is beginning at a younger and younger age where now, you know, we're seeing students even at the elementary school level, um, young students, um, you know third graders second graders very young students who are being uh, punished and and you know held to behavioral norms that are that are sometimes even irrational and and being um, held responsible and they're punished pretty severely when when
1: incidents arise you know um, when I was traveling for DOJ, and even now, I I tell communities that, you know, as a DOJ attorney, I needed them to push back on me, push on me as a federal attorney to hold me accountable and make the government do what it was supposed to do. And when you look at history and the way that civil rights has operated, it has been communities that's really kind of pushed the, the development of uh, the legal strategy in Brown v. Board, for instance, or the creation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, that, that brought us Title IV and Title VI, which are what the, the federal agencies now enforce in education. Um, and I wonder, you know, if, if you guys would just talk about how important communities and parents are in helping to enforce civil rights laws. Tim, what do you think?
2: Well parents are critical because they're the ones who are experiencing the harm um, and the parents will will come to us and they'll say, "My student is out of school." We have parents calling us saying that their student's been out of school for weeks and they haven't gotten any paperwork or they are uh, they have an elementary school student who is always being suspended. He's been suspended all these days, and the school it seems like all they want to do is suspend them. So those, that, a parent who's being affected and a family that's being affected and larger, to take a larger view of community that's being affected, um, they're critical advocates. Um, and that's why what we try to do is, is, is inform them of their, of their rights so that they know that, first of all, that this is a, a violation of their rights. And uh, they are informed as to what to do to to try to correct this. And if the people don't do it, uh, you will see uh, a lot of you know the these negative outcomes that we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. that,
3: what about? Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, that, uh, that, that parents it's it's often um, you know parents tend to want tend to respect and admire their teachers and want to you know want their students to to succeed in school and so. It's, it's often a difficult process for for parents and you know or community members to to kind of recognize and call out that their school or their educators are, are betraying their children. And but once it, it does get to that point where people are recognizing the problem, I, I believe that, that their perspective is is essential to defining to defining the issue and and also developing the strategy because they know firsthand,
2: how their children are being affected. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Allison, I just one point out. on that. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. well, I mean, uh, just, just to speak on that, uh, the issue of the parents coming forward, I think we, it's mm-hmm. important to recognize that there is a backlash against these parents in many cases, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and uh, it takes courage to, to step forward. Um, and, and a lot of in my practice, I see that even when we bring forth these claims, um, you know, if the schools are responsive, they kind of want to go ahead and just, you know, just keep it quiet. They don't want it to go public, um, and you know, they just don't want more and more parents coming forward sometimes. And, and it takes courage sometimes for these parents to, to step forward and say that they they want to, you know, uh, file a public complaint or, or go to the newspaper or something, and that. In that vein, because they're worried about their kid being in that school, they know they have to go to work and they have to drop the kid off in the morning. <laughs> and They're leaving their, mm-hmm. their student in these uh, these uh, professionals' hands. So it's and it, there is a need to uh, to protect these folks as well, um, and we have to figure out a way to do that um, and, and a way to encourage more parents to to you know, speak on these issues. Yeah, even what
1: about Students with special needs. How does the how does the law, how does civil rights laws in particular protect students
0: with disabilities? Yeah, and I you know I I think um, you know it, it's such an interesting conversation and in, and looking at the evolution of civil rights over the years. Um, you know I think it's it's absolutely right that we. Um, start the the conversation thinking about brown and thinking about access to education, um, especially for students of color. But I think you know over the decades, um, what has been fascinating to me is also seeing the implementation of of equity rights for for girls and for women, um, and and for language minorities, and, and also certainly um, more recently for students with disabilities. Um, that's actually a huge part of, of the Office for Civil Rights caseload. I think it's a slight majority of the cases that are filed with us, and, you know, I think um, where, where I think it's really critical um, is, is recognizing that unlike some of these historical um, issues of civil rights that we've been talking about, um, you know, for students with disabilities, I think what we see more often than not is school districts that actually don't have malice towards um, disabled kids but just a great deal of ignorance as to how best to serve this population um, and what the law requires because the law is actually a little bit complicated in this area um, because it does require more than just treating kids the same. It actually requires school districts to provide students with disabilities with you know the appropriate accommodations so they have an equal opportunity, um, and so you know I, th- I think um, we do a lot of outreach and a lot of technical assistance, a lot of education, as well as a lot of case investigations. Um, and, and it's you know I, I like that area of practice for us because there's there's far less of this kind of game of gotcha when we're doing investigations with disabilities, and much more like hey we're all trying to do the right thing here. It's just let us explain to to a school district what we think the legal obligations are and um, and then you know it's very much a conversation because on the educator side it's it's a lot of well this is what we can do and this is what's a little harder for us to do and and there are points in time where we can say well I know it's harder but you're still legally obligated <laughs> to do that um, but there's also certain points in the law where we can say well there's a lot of different ways that you can provide this accommodation, and this becomes a conversation between you um, and the parents, which, you know again, sort of circling back to your previous question, um, are such a critical part of of the educational process um, and certainly part of, of enforcing civil rights and making sure that the rights of, of your students are, are being upheld.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we've all seen stories, and we've all seen the data from your office, Stephen, the Office for Civil Rights, the Civil Rights Data Collection, that um, is groundbreaking in that, you know, the 2009-2010 school year data was the first time that we really saw a a deep dive from uh, the Office for Civil Rights in student discipline and um, data on student discipline disaggregated by race and um, gender and disability status. Um, And so, we were, while we were celebrating the release of that data, we were also lamenting the tremendous disparities that we saw there in that data, um, and racial disparities and um, in student discipline in particular, and it turns out that black boys with disabilities were the most suspended group of students mm-hmm. in the 2009-2010 school year of any group of students, um, and, you know, we, we've heard folks at the Advancement Project and elsewhere talk about and trace that to the war on the war on drugs. I'm sorry, the war on drugs, and how that that has really kind of um, had implications in the schools and um, you know this kind of two-part, um, the, the two-headed monster that is the school, the prison pipeline, the the you know literally having police in schools that uh, who are arresting students as one part of that pipeline and then the other, the, the more theoretical um, you know, kind of what happens to students who are excluded from the school environment as punishment for, for um, misbehavior and on that that literal piece of the pipeline when we see police in schools, you know, we saw another, yet another school shooting yesterday in Nevada um, at uh, middle school, Sparks Middle School in, in Nevada uh, and a math teacher was killed, shot and killed by a student, and two other students were wounded. Um, and this is after, you know, we've, been, we've seen Columbine and um, Jarden, Ohio, and Newtown, Connecticut, and so many other other shootings. And too often what we see is that the policies and practices that are implemented after such tragedies really have a negative impact on students of color and students with disabilities, Especially in urban schools, um so I wonder if you all would just talk about that a little bit um shakti you I've worked together a great deal on a case in Mississippi um, of that that literal part of the pipeline with police in schools will you Will you just talk about this notion of putting more police and more police equipment in schools?
3: Yes, absolutely, so I mean. The, these tragedies, uh, you know, with, with the violence and the shootings, are, are absolutely, you know, a national. Uh, it must become, uh, you know, a national priority. Figuring out what's going wrong, what's, what's, you know, how how to keep students safe, and that, you know, that that is of the utmost importance. Um, and I think that people's reaction that oh, we have to we have to create more law enforcement in schools. In order to keep children safe, that's a natural reaction. However, what what is common on on the ground in schools is that um, it's not it's the the presence of police in schools. Once they're in the schools, their 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 presence has to be justified. They have to have a reason to be there. And part of what happens is that the 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 t- types of behaviors that Teachers used to handle in the classroom, or perhaps a principal would handle in the office, become law enforcement matters, and um, this includes, you know, incidences as minor as a student being disrespectful or disobedient, or you know, not not following a rule to you know exactly the first time they're asked to. Now, rather than a teacher kind of taking the student aside and saying, "Excuse me, you know, you need to you need to follow the rules, you need to." You know, be quiet and, and respectful while I'm talking. They'll, you know, call in a police officer who will then take the child out of school in handcuffs. And the, the, uh, there are many problems with this, but one of the one of the um, saddest, saddest, um, I guess, manifestations of or, or consequences of this that I've seen is that it, it's utterly um, degrading and and traumatizing for that student. That student then begins to think of of themselves as as somehow, you know, different, other, you know, not qualified, not eligible to attend a school and uh, to participate in school as a normal student, that there's something wrong with them. And this this type of, you know, being walked out of school in handcuffs, sometimes taken to, to detention centers. Uh, where they're incarcerated over school school based behaviors, that then becomes normal for them rather than being in school learning uh, you know in, on the path to become productive citizens. And um, I do think that the more that school districts rely on law enforcement, the more involved they become you know in in the disciplining and management of student behavior, and that's not something historically. You know that, that, that we that schools have have used. I think there's a there's an absolute um, necessity to think about what what programs and services and people in the schools will help to re- resolve the types of discipline incidents that are leading most students to be to be suspended or expelled or even referred to law enforcement, those incidents, the overwhelming majority of them, are not these horrible mass shootings um, with with guns and, and, and extreme violence. Most of them involve, you know, minor incidents where, where children are disrespectful, disobedient, um, even where they're doing things like, you know, violating school uniform rules um, and that those could be handled with. Some type of intervention in the school with counselors, uh, with other types of therapeutic services, um, even by teachers and administrators, rather than law enforcement.
1: Mm-hmm. Just a reminder to listeners.
2: Sure, Allison. I'm sorry. Yeah, but just to brief. I just briefly want to touch on that as well. I mean, it's, it's a. It mm. is a, a. It's an illustration of the conflict between. A couple of different goals in society uh, that you have a, a goal of educating young people and getting them to be productive members of society and then you also have this this concern about their safety um, and uh, like like Shakti you know I, I do believe we need to be cautious about over extending the reach of the prison complex into these schools in the name of safety for these students um, because what you know like she like said the the impact is is treating people who aren't criminals like criminals and that's that's not that's not going to be the key because the, the more they're criminals the less they are non-criminals uh, people who are able to pay taxes and actually be somebody that provides money to our municipalities as opposed to somebody that costs money and that is dangerous um, But there is, we do have to figure out why these these tragic incidents are happening in school um, and what is going on outside of school also um, that is Mm -hmm. making this happen. Because it doesn't seem like everything, like like the the incident yesterday, Um, there's something going on with that that student and his family, Um, um, probably. Uh, We don't have a lot of details, but that's something that a lot of folks forget. They feel like, you know, you just need more guns and more officers in school. But the question is what's going on with our, our mental health um, and our health safety nets in these societies that are manifesting in uh, these tragic incidents in school? Mm-hmm. And I and I'd
3: just also like to add, not only you know are the students who, the students who are being disciplined and removed from school, not only are they negatively impacted, but uh, re- recent research has shown that the students who remain behind in the classroom, are also affected both academically and behaviorally in a negative manner. So it's not helping, it's not h- helping any of the students.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to remind the listeners that we are talking with Shakti Belway and Timothy Rivera and Stephen Chin, all education-focused civil rights attorneys, about civil rights law and education and what that looks like. Um, you know, and thinking about school safety and what school safety looks like, you know, there is research out there to, to show that when students are engaged in the academic process and in their, their education, they are um, less likely to misbehave, that the behaviors, as you both indicated, Shaki and Tim, that the behaviors that students are, are more likely to be suspended and expelled for especially when it comes to these racial disparities in student discipline, are really developmentally appropriate behaviors that should be addressed at the school level and not by law enforcement. Uh, and, and there is a lack of... There is a correlation between the lack of advanced course programming and highly qualified veteran teachers. Um, that There's a correlation between that and... and um, the number of suspensions and expulsions that we see uh, for especially for black and brown children um, and this speaks to what you were saying earlier, stephen, about your the the office for civil rights and the multifaceted jurisdiction that you have. Uh, will you just talk a little bit about how what other parts there are to the school to prison pipeline
0: yeah absolutely and and I think um you know, Allison, you, you sort of mentioned a lot of it um, in terms of access to a high-quality education, and that's certainly a, a big part of what this administration is pushing. It's a big part of what our agency is is trying to get um, our hands around and trying to work with school districts to figure this out. But you know, we're looking at um, not only access to advanced and AP classes, but just you know, even basics of of just what we would term resource comparability, making sure that you know schools that are are racially identifiably black or brown um, are given the same resources and access to resources that schools that are predominantly white within the same district um, and and you know these you know again, as alison mentioned I, I, you know these are incredibly. Complex systems, and there's a lot of moving parts to them um and and uh you know we do our best to try to get a handle on that and to try to work with the district to um, tweak this here because it will have impacts on outcomes there and and so you know we do um we do have a fairly robust docket of resource comparability cases. Um, the teacher equity piece of that is uh, is an increasingly important component and one that, again, this administration is deeply committed to. Um, and, and we see that. We see that in, again, not only the compliance reviews, the cases that we initiate, but also the complaints that are being filed with us, um, which help us, you know, figure out where the problems are within the, the many school districts that we're taking a look at so we can kind of focus our resources in the right places and make sure that we're asking the right questions um, and ensuring that the way these veteran teachers are being um, placed um, throughout a district is, is, is happening in an equitable and a fair way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, these are, these are really complicated issues. They're really complicated times with school safety also um, being a factor here. Um, and, and, you know, I, I I was a teacher at one point, and I, I don't envy the the task that educators have today because there's so many things to balance. There's so many concerns um, at the same time. And, you know, I think one of the important things that all of us do um, in this roundtable is, as we're trying to balance all of these Values all these considerations, you know, to make sure that at the end of the day, the systems that we construct, the systems we come up with, don't specifically disadvantage, you know, protected groups of African American kids, Latino kids, disabled kids, Um, and uh, you know, that's certainly an important part of any system that that gets created
3: and And I'd like to add that you know i I just think you know again, I agree completely with Stephen, teachers are are in many cases heroes, are doing some of the most difficult work and important work um, in this country. And I think you know most of them have have the best of intention in the classroom. Um, but in terms of you know building you know long term building safe schools where, there is a nurturing environment where both students and teachers, and, and even parents, all feel safe, um, and, and that, that they're able. That it's, it's a productive learning environment. Uh, one of the there's really been some compelling research out of out of Chicago public schools, showing how the more the more law enforcement and, and harsh discipline approach that there is in a school, the the less safe. That teachers and administrators feel that this then erodes the the, the building of trusting, supportive relationships that are essential to um, to this to this safe environment that people are seeking. And so, again, increasing the presence of law enforcement and and a really harsh and punitive environment undermines the the you know the ability of people to develop these strong and nurturing and and trusting relationships that would then, I think, decrease discipline incidence over time. Mm
1: -hmm. Tim and Shakti, you are both in, um, you know, I guess kind of pressure cookers when it comes to charter schools, and uh, there has been a lot of of, um, innovation in charter schools and from charter schools, and then there's been a lot of uh, there's still a lot of work to do let's let 's say about um, with charter schools and um, washington d c and New Orleans are really I think the front runners in terms of um, approving charters and uh, the number of charters that have been issued and that are operating um, in those cities. Will you just talk a little bit and Tim you know we 'll start with you about the law and charter schools, and how, what that interaction looks like.
2: Sure. Um, with charter schools, I think it's important to recognize that they are not private schools; they're public schools, and you know, people who go there don't have to pay tuition as long as you're in within the zone that they serve. So, in the, in DC, that means that students who are residents or that have parents who are residents in DC don't have to pay. What we're seeing here, though. Is that with these public schools, um, they are they don't have a lot of regulation as to their their disciplinary policies, and particularly the way that they suspend and expel students. Uh, when an expulsion happens here in D.C. from a charter school, um, that student is able to enroll in their what's called a neighborhood school, um, and they're not prohibited from doing that. There may be some if they get expelled for something really bad. The, the neighborhood school may tell them that they have to you know, go to detention for a certain amount of days or be suspended right when they start. But these students don't have to be out for the rest of the year if they're expelled from charters. However, they, this is a tremendous disruption for these students educationally. Um, and, and like I've seen, and it's something that's a little more of a subtle point, uh, students need to feel like education is their thing. You know, they need to feel like it's cool to succeed in education if we want to have good educational outcomes. And these expulsions, um, if they're unregulated, they're happening too much. And in D.C. it is. Um, these, these expulsions are uh, too rampant here in D.C. in the charter school context. And it's affecting these, these kids' psyches. It's, it's disrupting their classes, of course, um, and it's leading to more dropouts. Um, and we have a, a, a state organization called OSI um, that is charged with regulating the schools for the state even though we're in DC there's a state organization Um, and we're looking for more regulation of these charter schools especially in the way that they the rules regarding suspensions and expulsions and as of right now um, there is no absolutely no regulation uh, on the book with regard to how uh, what they have to do if they want to expel or what they have to do if they want to suspend all we have is the civil basically the civil rights case of Goss versus Lopez that came out in the eighties um and you know it lays it sets forth minimum minimal requirements um that doesn't talk about how to handle long term suspensions and expulsions in detail and it doesn't lay out the specific requirements of those um so uh, in short um charter school discipline and school push out in charter schools is is a problem here because it's unregulated.
1: Mm-hmm. And shopping New Orleans is essentially all charter at this point, is that right?
3: Yes, nearly. It nearly is. I, I believe it must be close to 90%. At, um, and this is really just since in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, The um, I guess 2006, 2005, 2006, when the um, explosion of charter schools really took place here in New Orleans. And honestly, there are there are exciting aspects of um, what many call the market-based approach to public education, to providing a, a you know a public service, a public good. Uh, and as many of the you know reformers uh, you know excitedly talk about, is that you know since these community these school, charter schools can be places of innovation and creativity, and really an opportunity for. Uh, you know, teachers, educators, to figure out what will work best to serve students well, and that's you know that's definitely an idea that most of us can get behind. Now, at the same time, what um, what is commonly happening is that because the charter schools have well, all, you know, all schools now have test data, performance data that they they, they are evaluated on, and um, Perhaps because you know that in part, but also because there there is a different kind of uh, governing framework that, that that now operates in New Orleans, where there isn't one one school district that all of the charter schools are are uh, members of. Instead, there are several school districts, each each governing you know a separate network of schools, and so there are different kind of cost cost calculations in terms of you know the, the price. If you will, to educate a child that are taking place, um, a complex set of factors. but but what's happened is that there are schools who were essentially um, screening students and deciding, you know in terms of admission and figuring out which students they wanted to admit based on you know a number of criteria. Sadly, what what um, was happening quite frequently. Is that students with disabilities or students who had, um, you know, a history of behavior problems, were being denied admission to some of the charter schools, um, and and would sometimes have great difficulty even finding a school to enroll in, a school that would accept them. Um, another thing that, another thing that I've really been surprised by is. is uh, like like Timothy was saying that charter schools are, are you know not private schools that they shouldn't have a tuition and it's it's not necessarily a tuition but here in New Orleans there are charter schools that are charging students upwards of a thousand dollars through various fees and things to attend school and you know I've met students who got into very competitive well regarded charter schools. But then had to withdraw because they couldn't afford all of the fees that were required of them to be students at these at these public schools. Another um, another I, I don't know another aspect of charter schools and and their growth in the country that has me deeply concerned is this question of of what what is you know what does the right to a public education consists of, and the legal framework around charter schools uh, is different from from that of public schools. For instance, this question as to whether charter schools are state actors has not yet been resolved in courts. Mm. I I know that the Ninth Circuit um, had a case where they issued a decision and said that for, um, for, for litigation purposes, the charter school was not a state actor. And therefore, the the teacher who was bringing a claim, constitutional claim, um, couldn't couldn't bring the action against the school, and that's that's concerning, um, I, I think, long
1: term. Right. Stephen, I wonder if you would just, in the last or so that we have, um, answer a very loaded question. So you're welcome <laughs> for that. Um, <laughs> just talk about the future of civil rights law, you know, we hear people saying, oh, the law should have nothing to do with education, um, and that education really should be run by state and local actors. What What do you think about the future of civil rights law?
0: Well, you know, I, I think, um, you, you know, the, the extensive conversation we just had about charter schools, you know, I think is actually really apt to... Um, Kind of uh, foreshadow a little bit of where this is going, or you know I do think that there is this push for greater educational flexibility, and I think that's you know that's really good it's really important it's 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 um, critical for our educational institutions to have that kind of pliability to be able to respond to emerging trends um, to to respond to the needs of of a very diverse and a very changing um, student demographic, but at the same time you know it the flexibility can't be so open that it is without regulation and it is without protection because, you know, and again, charter schools are a great example of this. We've we've encountered many that think that they're just so independent that they don't have to follow the law and they, you know, they're not providing accommodations to kids with disabilities. They're, you know, picking and choosing who gets admitted. And often that means not the African-American kid and not the Latino kid. And so, you know, I actually, I think that there continues to be a need, a deep and profound need, um, for at least from a civil rights perspective, um, for the law to continue to continue to evolve, evolve along with, um, these new trends in education. Um, but to ensure that, that kids aren't being left behind, kids aren't being treated differently, um, because of their race, because of their color, because of their national origin or disability or, or their gender. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there are people, um, all the folks around this roundtable certainly included, um, that are trying to push the envelope, that are trying to evolve the law in ways that make sense for um, the changing times that we have, but there will always be a place um, for for civil rights attorneys in education. Um, there will always be a place for um, folks who are advocates um, for minority students because it, it's just too dangerous um, a, a landscape out there. And, and I, I, you know I, know, I know that we all want to think that we're post-racial. We want to think that we're um, not going to behave the way that we did, but. But that still happens, and it, it's still happening all over the place in cities as well as in rural towns.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I want to thank all of you so much for being here. Timothy Rivera is at the Advocates for Justice and Education, www.aje-dc.org. Stephen Chen is at the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights and was speaking today in his individual capacity and not on behalf of the department. Uh, You can find more information about the Office for Civil Rights at ed.gov, ed.gov, slash OCR. And Shapi Bellway is here. She's an education consultant and civil rights attorney. Thank you so much for for being here. Thank Thank you, Allison. Allison. Yes, you are now officially certified know-it-alls in education and the law and civil rights. Join us again next week for another episode of Know-It-All.